they were people that anecdotally um, I'd heard complaints about but no one was willing to come forward about. And now this has given me an opportunity to start having these conversations. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. Last time we talked about a new service which supports doctors who require psychological support in the English NHS. Now, as we said there, and as we've said in many other podcasts we've done, there's no point in helping the individual get better if they're just going to be thrown back into a system that makes them ill again. Now, that might be best exemplified by the podcast which we called Burnout, Don't Try and Make the Canary in the Coal Mine More Resilient. And that's available in our feed uh, for free for anyone to go back and listen if you haven't heard it. The NHS is doing some work already to make their organisations better in this way. We now have the Freedom to Speak Up Guardians who are there to encourage a culture of openness. But that's not the only thing that we can do. And some time ago I heard about some hospitals in the Southern Hemisphere who were really working to become more open. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and at the Risky Business Conference I talked to the people involved about creating a speak-up culture in a large organisation. Hi, I'm Mark O'Brien. I'm the Medical Director of Cognitive Institute. What's that? Our Cognitive Institute is a training risk management uh, leadership organisation based in Brisbane, Australia. And uh, we work across uh, many of the English-speaking countries in the world and uh, we're part of the Medical Protection Society. Great. And Jeanette? I'm um, Jeanette Connolly. I'm the Medical and Clinical Governance Executive at Adventist Healthcare in Sydney, Australia. And that's a, that's a hospital? Yeah, acute hospital. We've got a la- the largest private hospital in New South Wales. Great. And Alex? Um, my name is Alex. I'm the CEO of KK Women's and Children's Hospital. And that's the, the only women's and children's hospital in Singapore. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us. So this morning we had a, a, a breakfast session where we were talking a lot about um, safety culture. And I thought the bit that was really fascinating is you, you have this uh, Speak Out initiative. Mark, could you just uh, explain what that is? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, Duncan, the Speaking Up for Safety initiative was really uh, the start of a conversation with uh, initially our partner hospitals, but now a much larger group of hospitals around what is the culture, what's the moral and ethical framework for the culture in which we, sh- we should work as clinicians. Um, in a sense, we put out the ethical and moral challenge to boards, to executives and to clinicians about what is the sort of behaviours they would like to see in a hospital. Uh, and in particular, how would they like people to speak up if they, for example, their mother or their child was in the hospital bed and someone in the room was aware that something was not right and didn't speak up, how would they feel about that? And as we know from the research, culture change is a long process. And and to change a culture, you need to engage in conversations. You can't put in a system to change culture. It's a conversation. And so um, there is this whole piece of engagement and talking and discussion and sowing the ground. And the Speaking Up program, really, its success, I think, the success we are having, is first of all, that we engage in that long process of conversation and discussion and engagement. And that then ultimately leads to some training for everyone in how to speak up, because 
knowing how to speak up is a skill, but then finally to a piece that says, but what about in those circumstances where you can't speak up face to face? We provide another way for people to pass on that information without having to speak up face to face for as long as is needed until the culture gets to a point where indeed it is a culture where everyone can speak up for safety. And I think everyone listening will be aware of situations in which generally you can talk to colleagues about things, but there will be one person who you kind of have to tread in eggshells around a little bit. Uh, and part of this is to, to tackle that person. Absolutely. I mean, we really want to give uh, the organisation, indeed the clinicians within the organisation, a choice. What sort of place do you want to work in? What is the environment you want to provide care in? And indeed, ultimately, do you align with a culture that says we will speak up all the time for safety? And, and we give people decision points along the way. And ultimately, the decision point is, if you're not prepared to be part of that culture, then really should you be working at this hospital? And indeed, we even may at a board and executive level take the decision that you're not able to work at this hospital. Not because you, we don't like you or the type of work you do, but because we need a culture where everybody uh, understands that the essential nature of speaking out. Mm. Now, Jeanette, you've started this in your organisation. Um, that decision, that that's quite a potentially confrontational um, decision to make. Was was that difficult for you guys? Well, we absolutely embrace what what the um, idea is here. And to have staff being able to speak up, it's really important that they have a sense of psychological safety to do that because we all know there's prickly people in the organisations. Like if you come onto night duty and you realise that so-and-so is the, you know, the rostered person on call, that, you know, there's certain people that you want to be on call with tonight and certain people that you don't. And um, we need to be able to break down those situations and give people the psychological safety to be able to speak up about things. A lot of it's, as we're going through it, a lot of it's also about building teamwork and the ability for teams to work better together. And um, to be able to speak to each other, we need to be able to have respectful conversations in the team. So I, I really think it's also in in um, gendering a lot of teamwork that we probably didn't have before. Mm. And a lot of that culture stuff can flow from the top and, and often, I maybe I'm out of time speaking like this, but often those those prickly people are can be at the, the top of uh, of the tree. So for you guys, how did you start, and how did you start doing that? What was the kind of, how did you start loosening up that, mm. that, that culture up? We started with our board and our executive first being committed to the program and making sure that they weren't going to blink if, if one of our really high revenue earning doctors was someone that, who maybe was in this category and being willing to let them exit the organisation if they had to. But the next level was really to get our medical advisory committee and our key medical leaders involved, as well as our other leaders, the nursing and allied health leaders. But we, we, I guess we predicted that the medical side was going to be more difficult for us. So we really wanted to get them involved. And we had Mark and other colleagues from the Cognitive Institute come and present to that group. And I remember the first time that there was a presentation one of our really key medical leaders was very sceptical and in subsequent medical advisory committee meetings afterwards was talking sort of negatively about that. But then we had another another um, meeting where Mark and colleagues came in and spoke broadly about about what 
what it's, what it's like working with disruptive physicians and what the impact can be on the organisation. And it was great because after that, that same individual was a convert and now been one of our strongest supporters of the program. So I really think having those clinicians, the key clinician leaders in, engaged was very important for us to be able to move forward and to be successful. Mm. And I've heard uh, off the record people telling me how um, the big time sink for chief medical officers in hospital is dealing with those few problem clinicians. Have you, uh, I mean, that's kind of your role, have you, have you found that's changed? Uh, um, well, I, I think actually probably I'm spending more time on having conversations with people, but this is what we want. We want to be able to get everyone talking about poor behaviour and that's then going to create more work for me. But um, at the end of the day, that's what we want to do to be able to get that behaviour to change or if that behaviour can't change because some people are ingrained in certain behaviours that they can't change, well, um, I'd prefer those people to go and work with our competitors rather than working with us. Now, Alex, um, Australia is a kind of infamously informal culture generally um, and Singapore perhaps slightly less so. So when you decided to kind of embark on this, was... uh, you know, how difficult was it for you or what were you thinking about um, why it was particularly important for you to, to, to start embracing this, this Speak Up for Safety culture? Yeah, thanks very much, Duncan. Uh, we knew that that was something which is very important that we needed to do. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately for us, we had a burning platform. Uh, we experienced two uh, disasters uh, previously in the last couple of years and, and uh, as a result of which uh, we had people who actually were coming to us asking, you know, uh, why did we let this happen, right? So, so that was, in a sense, a bit easier for us. Um, uh, I'll be lying if I said that there was no scepticism, but uh, like what Mark uh, alluded to earlier, uh, we had to communicate, uh, communicate and communicate very carefully, uh, and more importantly, to listen uh, to their concerns. So, um, so when it came to implementing it, uh, we, we were, to be honest, uh, a little bit worried initially, but uh, thankfully it, it, uh, it, it rolled out very, very well. And I really want to thank Mark as well, because the team has been really, really helpful and they came in to help us. So this is our third, fourth year now, you know, uh, and, and we've done uh, surveys that have shown clearly that uh, people are more willing to speak up. And, and the next challenge, of course, is how do we continue to create uh, the environment which is uh, safe for people to speak up? Mm. Now, Mark was saying, you know, part of this is, is creating a culture where, you know, if you don't fit, perhaps this isn't the right organisation for you. Did you experience that? Uh, we are a publicly funded hospital, so, so I guess to some extent, uh, uh, I'm not saying that uh, we don't have the problem, but uh, we were able to uh, uh, manage that uh, uh, well. Um, and, and thankfully, all our physicians uh, have one thing in mind. They, they all want to come to work to do the right thing. So, so at the end of the day, um, we just needed to, to bridge that gap of understanding. And, and we had that uh, to begin with. And now I think the results uh, sort of speak for themselves. Uh, and we have, I think, quite a solid buy-in uh, from across the ranks. Great, thank you. Um, 
No, but as you said, culture change takes a while. It's not a simple thing, and it's it's not necessarily a, a straightforward process. There are forwards and backs uh, as it goes through this, and so within that, you need some way of challenging people. Uh, you know, taking if they're not coming with you naturally, of of challenging them, and that's that's part of this as well. You have a a kind of accountability framework. Yeah, that's right. We are fortunate to work with our colleagues at Vanderbilt University uh, who have done a lot of work in this area. Um, we looked at their great program. We did a lot of um, uh, adaption and, 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 if you like, in cultural, cultural change for the, if you like, the British-speaking part of the world rather than the American-speaking part of the world. Uh, and there are very diff significant differences in the way American healthcare is structured compared to yeah. the UK, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand. So we, we felt that embedding that accountability program within a speaking up program was really critical. And, and I think you know, our success has vindicated that. Um, I, I think the first thing to say is, is you know, there's, you, there are, you know, an accountability framework is not a, a hard thing to set up. Uh, it's very logical. You can go to a HR textbook. So it's not, you know, we're not in any way downgrading what our Vanderbilt colleagues have achieved. If you looked at the framework from any other industry, you would go, well, of course, <laughs> that's obvious. The issue is really, is do we have leadership? Do we have alignment? Do we have a sense of moral purpose, urgency? Um, <clears throat> Alex is being very humble. Um, just because you have an incident doesn't mean you've got a burning platform. A burning platform is created by the moral and ethical leadership of the organisation to say this incident is actually a burning platform and we see it that way. And so, um, you know, we see our role at Cognitive Institute. Um, you know, we have a very strong clinical focus. Most of our people have been, had clinical experience for 25, 30 years. We are senior enough to be able to speak up ourselves about what we think should be happening, but that will fall on deaf ears if, if the leadership of an organisation is not in other words, if there's not a fertile ground. And so, you know, maybe the, what we do is we give the words and the framework for courageous leaders to speak up. And then once courageous leaders speak up, like Jeanette was saying, you know, quite rightly, doctors should be, they're scientific, they should be cynical, they should analyse. But if you continue to engage respectfully, if you keep making the moral and ethical case, sometimes the biggest sceptic can turn into the greatest advocate. And as those people shift, then you've got the genesis of culture change. Jeanette, can I just actually get you to kind of, what is that accountability framework? How does it actually work in, in, in practice in the hospital? It has changed quite a lot, um, Duncan, how we've been, I guess, addressing performance management. Uh, we had a fairly traditional thing in the past where if someone wanted to report performance management, or, you know, say a doctor wasn't doing something correctly, then they'd have to put in an incident system or write something down and then be an investigation. People would be taking statements from, say, staff or witnesses. We'd be looking at clinical records and that type of thing. And, and then to get the doctor to come in and talk about that, we'd be writing formal letters and, you know, they'd be bringing a support person, which is often their lawyer and that type of thing. So a very, um, I guess, legalistic approach to that taking quite a bit of time, uh, you know, and people are naturally quite fearful when they see something and they want to report it. They know that there's all these steps that they're going to have to go through in the old way we used to do things. And so a lot of people just didn't want to have that sort of angst. 
but now with this accountability framework it's like there's something below that which which allows people to talk about um, what's happening but without having to go through all those processes necessarily and so in the new model um, someone can hopefully directly speak to the other person and be listened to that I, I noticed that you didn't you know wash your hands for three minutes you only did it for one minute or something um, and then hopefully the other person takes that on board and listen or they might be able to tell their manager that they saw something and the manager then will talk to the other person but if they can't do that they can put in these anonymous reports in our system and we've trained some peer messengers and their role is to just go in and let the other person know that something was observed the person was quite concerned about that and they thought it was affecting our safety or could affect our safety and we just wanted to let you know we don't know if it's true or not we haven't investigated that or anything but we just thought you should know and um, the science from Vanderbilt has shown that after just one of those conversations with a peer 70 percent of people won't do that same behavior again some people they might continue to exhibit that same sort of behavior and if they have a couple of other conversations after I think three, something like, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, but Mark, but something like about 90% of people will not do that behavior again. But there are some people who, for whom, for whatever reason, uh, maybe they've just got a sort of personality that doesn't like to conform, um, they might continue to exhibit certain behaviors. And at, at that point, um, leaders like myself can get involved in these conversations and we, have a new way of talking about it now. We can just talk about a theme, a, a trend that we're seeing. Um, you've already heard from some peers that there's some trend, a trend here that's been sort of observed and we haven't investigated all that, but we just feel that, you know, no one else has had this sort of trend and, you know, we'd like you to think about that. And again, that can really make a big difference. But yes, there would be some times where we might have to then switch back into what the traditional path has been um, because someone's repeated behavior and then we can go through the the normal sort of processes of the disciplinary type pathway that we've had before but for me it, it provides a, a really excellent um, new way of getting those conversations happening and our experience has been that once we started this anonymous reporting tool that People who were being reported from the doctor's perspective anyway, which is where I'm mostly involved, they were people that anecdotally um, I'd heard complaints about but no one was willing to come forward about. And now this has given me an opportunity to start having these conversations. And unlike Alex, we have had one exit from our organisation and we are sort of escalating the processes with some others. So I'm expecting there may be some other exits as well. Mm. But to me, that's that's um, showing the success of what we're trying to achieve. Duncan, it's probably worth just adding there, um, Jeanette's ex eloquent explanation of how the system works. Um, the, our experience so far in our part of the world has, uh, is basically showing that these conversations are very powerful, particularly in the construct of for 12 or 18 months or two years beforehand, a conversation that's been going on. I think if you just started that system, mm -hmm. yeah. it would be like, well, who's this? But yeah. when you've been having a two-year conversation about what sort of place do we want to be, we are promoting a speaking up culture. This is about morality. This is about ethics then these conversations are very powerful. And I'm sure you've had the experience, Jeanette, we, we've, we're hearing from all sorts of public, private, that a common response after two or three of these conversations is people choosing at that level to depart. 
not even waiting for a conversation with the manager. Mm-hmm. Just saying, I've been hearing about this for 18 months or two years. This is obviously the organisation is changing. These conversations are now happening. I just don't want to be here. I don't align. I don't believe in this. And indeed, that's actually really a great outcome because it's basically saying the culture of work that is strong enough that people don't wait around to be performance managed, don't wait around to, for it to come to a head, but just say, wow, this place has changed. This is not what it was like two years ago. Uh, my colleagues aren't backing me if I complain about this. Then if, and so that engagement process for beforehand is really powerful. And I think that's why these conversations, when you finally get to you know a year or two later, when this program starts, it's got real power. Mm. How in that, I mean, I'm just trying to put on sceptic HR hat here, but, you know, when it's not a formal process, I imagine people are worried about, you know, people being targeted, whereas, um, you know, reports like this. Do you have any way of, of filtering that out, or do you just rely on the culture to...? Well, we certainly, um, in our organisation, thought carefully about that. Um, so there's a couple of answers. Firstly, that if someone has a report against them, I don't consider that has any black mark against them. So it of itself. Um, so, you know, there's nothing going on their personnel file. There's no sort of black mark in my head that that person's now a transgressor um, because we haven't investigated it. So we can't take any assumptions there. But we do also um, have a process. We when people put in the anonymous re- reports, um, there's not anyone in the organisation except for one person that can find out who put that in. But we did allow a code-breaking sort of system just in case we do see a pattern of reports, you know, all, all similar against a certain person. We can ask the one person, which in our case is the Director of Risk Management, to do a code-break and they can see if there's been, you know, those reports have been put in by the one person because there could be an evidence that there's vexatious reporting going on. And I have asked for that code break a couple of times if there's been multiple reports against someone. And so far, the in our experience, that hasn't been the case. But it is possible and I think we need to be aware of that. And so we've had a process that we'll be able to safeguard that. If we found that there was vexatious reporting, that would be a very serious matter for us and we would be and we've in the lead up to this we made it clear that that would be not not tolerated and that would be a performance issue so just to add so to broaden that out duncan so there are very strong safeguards in the system <coughs> as as uh, Jeanette was saying um, we won't work with a board or executive that doesn't impose the strongest sanction possible for uh, vexatious reporting and that is communicated widely for essentially the year before the program goes in. Uh, the, there is always some mechanism, it's not truly anonymous as Jeanette says, and that is communicated widely. This is not as hidden from people. Mm. People are told that when you put in a report, if, we, if there is a suspicion of vexatious reporting, they can be unlocked or, <clears throat> and indeed, if we find vexatious reporting, you will face serious sanctions. So there's no secret. That's widely communicated, widely known, uh, and indeed, we build in reminders so that if people forget it, they, they, they're not allowed to forget it because it continuously is reminded as they put in reports mm. or whatever. It's certainly a grave fear that people have. In practical terms, it's not occurring on the ground. I'm not to say it couldn't happen, 
uh, but there are strong safeguards in there. And we believe this is actually part of being a professional, that just because you receive feedback that you don't agree with doesn't mean you shouldn't reflect on it. Why would somebody even have a misperception? And we can encourage that level of professionalism and self-reflectiveness. So, so rather than this being seen as a punitive system, um, you know, we believe that the, the work we do is speaking up first, which is essentially about creating a psychological safety. And we know from other industries that when you go to speak up, we want people to speak up when, they, when they're wrong. Because if people have to wait long enough till they're absolutely certain that they're right, it's often too late. Yeah. Alex, but I just wondered, do you have any stories or, or any examples of, of, you know, using this framework to actually change the culture a bit, to change individual people's minds? Yes. So, so um, like what Mark said, uh, is, is this framework is not uh, a whistleblowing framework. Uh, it, it, we view it as a, the help that the organisation gives to individuals who, who um, who aren't able to speak up for whatever reasons, uh, mainly fear or, or who have tried but uh, uh, couldn't get the results that uh, they wanted. So, so it was um, framed as such. And, uh, and when we rolled this out, um, again, I think uh, initially we were worried uh, that people might not uh, uh, understand uh, this as, as, as well as, uh, uh, as, as uh, they, they should. But uh, what we found out subsequently was quite interesting. Uh, we, we actually engaged uh, some of our uh, prominent clinicians, uh, really one-to-one, -one and, and uh, to seek their understanding. And, and what Jeanette said, uh, a few of them actually uh, had actually come forward and, and offered their help uh, as well. Great. So that's really very, very gratifying. So for anyone who's interested in finding out a little bit more, where should they go? How should they sort of, you know, have you got any reading, anything else that, that people can go to? Look, uh, our website is www.cognitiveinstitute, one word, uh, .org. And certainly there people can find out about the programs and research and, and, and literature on that. Great, Mark. Mark, thank you very much. For, Duncan, it's been a pleasure. Us. Alex, thank you very much thank you. for joining us. You're most welcome. Thank you so much, Duncan. And Jeanette as well. It was fascinating to hear. Thanks a lot, Duncan. You've been listening to Alex Sia, CEO of KK Hospital in Singapore. Jeanette Conley, who's medical executive at Adventist Healthcare in Sydney. And Mark O'Brien, medical director at the Cognitive Institute. They're all talking about creating a speak out culture. We have lots more on well-being as well as more from Risky Business in our archives. You can find them on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. There are hundreds of interviews available there, all for free, and they actually count towards your CPD. So that's a good way to spend some time on your commute. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back next week hearing about figures on knife crime in the UK. Is it as bad? as we've read in the papers. And we'll also have another one of our talk evidence episodes. And recently you might have seen something about the timing of medicines while we go into the evidence on that. But that's next week and this is the end of the podcast. So until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>